there are things in life that are confusing, right? Lots of things in life that are confusing. In fact, we park on a driveway, we drive on a parkway. Doesn't make any sense, does it? Or our parents think about toys. It used to be when you got a toy, there was a picture of the toy on the box. You would open the box, you could pull the toy out, and you're like, here, kid, go play with the toy. Today it's different, isn't it? Today they have this military-grade plastic that they wrap our toys in. Now, granted, you could see the toy, but getting into it's pretty tough. And you're sitting there cutting in, and if you're a parent, you might have sliced your finger a few times on that, that very sharp plastic. But then once you get that toy out, are you done? No. They decided to put about 55 ties on this toy to hold it in place. And so you sit there, and you have to untie every single one of those ties. By the time the kid gets the toy, they're like, I don't want it anymore. I'm done. <laughs> Confusing. GPS devices. They're great. An amazing invention. We can go from point A to point B pretty effortlessly. But sometimes my British woman who tells me everywhere I need to go she'll say hey I want you to go from point A to point B and I'm like this is point A to point nowhere like there's a river in front of me and there's no bridge I can't cross it or there's a forest but there's no road or there's a cliff and you start to think AI may be a lot smarter maybe they're beginning to try to get rid of us quickly <laughs> confusing for many of us here uh, it's basketball season NCAA your brackets totally confusing right or the one thing for me on Easter Sunday the Easter celebration is why anybody in their right mind would stick a peep in their mouth and eat it. <laughs> totally confusing. We could add to that list. We could spend our time, in fact, over the next few moments, just coming up with a list of everything that's confusing in life because there are many things that are confusing. But this morning, we're going to look at a story. We're going to look at an event in the life of Jesus that confused a lot of people a couple of thousand years ago and even confuses us somewhat today. If you haven't been with us over the last few weeks, we've been in the series, Jesus is blank. And over the past few weeks, we've been putting specific words within that blank there. Now, now maybe you're here this morning, you're like, well, Jesus is, is fake to me. Jesus is not real. Jesus is made up. And you know what? Let me tell you, you are in a safe place to ask that question, to believe in that. This is a church where we feel this is a great opportunity for us to grow in our spiritual journey. And so if that's the place you are, and those are the, the, the phrases that you would use and the words you would use, this is a safe place for you. But for those of us that are followers of Jesus, over the past few weeks, we've put a specific word into that blank. We said Jesus is freedom, and Jesus is hope, and Jesus is love. And today we've got one more word that I think encompasses all of those things that we're going to add into this blank today as we talk about this confusing story. If you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 20. We're going to spend our time there this morning. In John chapter 20, if you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles there in the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, you lost it, your dog ate it, whatever, please feel free to take that home. That is yours. It's free. You don't know us anything. You can have that Bible. We're going to put it up here on the screen. You can follow along on your Journey Church app or even on the back of your program. There's a place to take notes. But we're going to be in John chapter 20, starting with verse 1. Here's what it says. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Let me give you a little backstory up at this point. 
Friday, a couple of days before 3 p.m., Jesus dies. Uh, a couple of guys come to the Romans and are like, hey, we want to take his body. And they say, sure, take his body. And so they take his body, they put it in some linen, they put it in some cloth, they put it in this brand new tomb. It's never been used before. And in fact, they put about 75 pounds of spices on Jesus' body. Now, the reason they did this was because the Sabbath for the Jewish people started at 6 p.m. They didn't have enough time to embalm him. And so they had to work pretty quickly to get his body into that tomb, get him set so they could celebrate the Sabbath. Well, here we are. It's Sunday morning. As John retells this event, he says Mary Magdalene shows up. Now, she's there for one reason. Because in the King James Version, it would say Jesus stinketh right and so Jesus is stinketh right now at this moment and so they've got to put more spices on his body and she's there to do just that something interesting though about this verse this verse would have confused the people hearing the retelling of the story it would confuse the people that are reading the story first off women were not credible witnesses in that day it was a male-dominated society. And so if, if you had something within the law world that you needed to take care of, you needed to take someone to court for, you would not bring a woman into the scene to say, hey, she's the witness to what's happening here. And so she's not a credible witness in that and also in events that would take place. And yet here's John who says, hey, guess who the first person is who sees that Jesus' body is not in the tomb? It's a female. It's a woman. It's Mary Magdalene. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say that women were the first people to witness the empty tomb. Not a credible witness. This would have confused the audience. But then secondly, if you're going to start a movement, and that movement being Christianity, telling the story of Jesus, if you're going to start a movement, you wouldn't start it with this woman. In the book of Luke, we meet Mary Magdalene for the very first time, and what we find is that she literally is a tortured soul. She has seven demons that live inside of her. You think your life's pretty tough. I mean, can you imagine what that was like for her? But Jesus shows up. And Jesus shows up and Jesus heals her. He saves her and she actually becomes one of his close followers. But if you're retelling these events and you're John and you want people to believe what you're saying, you know what you would do? You would change the story. You'd put some man into the story who was the first witness. You would talk about how important he was in that community. People would know who he was. But not John and not Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why? They're retelling these events as they took place. Again, very confusing to the people that are hearing these events being retold to them. Look at verse 2. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Mary goes, and she finds Peter and John. Peter and John are two of Jesus' closest friends, and she's like, hey, guys, I was just at the tomb, and it's empty. There's nobody in there. And so what do they do? They hear this news, and they're thinking, all of them are thinking the same thing. Somebody stole the body. Our, our enemies are trying to pay us back. And, and so they go to the tomb. And here's what happens in verse 4. Both were running. This is Peter and John. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So John's writing this, okay? And so he's kind of talking in the third person all throughout this book. This is called humor. Because he's like, 
I'm the young, fast one. Peter, he's old and slow. I'm, I'm going to be the first one there at the tomb. And so we see that they're running to the tomb to see what's going on here. Verse 5 says, He, this is John, bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. So John's fast, right? He gets there first. <laughs> what does he do? He just glances in. He just looks in quickly, but he doesn't go into the tomb. Look at the next verse here. Verse 6. Then Simon Peter came along behind him, remember the, the slow guy, and went straight into the tomb. So Peter gets there, more than likely huffing and puffing, but he gets there and he doesn't hesitate. And if you know the, the personality of Peter, you know this is the way he responds and acts towards everything. He just runs right into the tomb because he wants to see what's happening there. Look at the rest of verse 6. He saw the strips of linen lying there, again this is Peter, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, here's John with a little humor, a dig at Peter, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. When I read those verses, I sense confusion. They're, they're trying to figure out where Jesus is. I mean, I sense that there's these questions in their minds like, where is Jesus? In fact, if we look at some of these words specifically, we find that that question is there, that confusion is there. In verse 5, it says, John looked. That, that term, looked, in the scripture means that he glanced. So again, he didn't, he didn't go in. He just kind of glanced in briefly to see and saw that Jesus wasn't there. But then if we look at verse 6, it says, Peter saw. That word saw means investigated, which makes sense. Peter was that kind of guy. He runs right into the tomb. He investigates what's happening there. But, but there's still this question, where is Jesus? And then lastly there in verse 8, again it says John saw, and it said he saw, he understood, and he believed. Every time I read those words, I kind of struggle because John's response in that moment doesn't seem to be like someone who would respond when something incredible has taken place because look what they do in verse 10 it says then the disciples went back to where they were staying they get there the tomb's empty there's no body there's the linen there's the the faith face cloth is in there but there is no body and, and so what do they do they could tell everybody right hey guys <laughs> let me tell you a story about jesus and, and he died and he came back to life this is amazing I mean if you believe this was true wouldn't you tell everybody that you know but John doesn't do that John doesn't do the happy dance you and I we do the happy dance when exciting things happen we we tell people of incredible news uh, I've told parts of this before we have uh, my wife Kara and I have three kids Savannah Avery and, and Jake when uh, when Savannah was born we didn't know what we were having. Now, it doesn't mean that, we, you know, she just kind of showed up and we're like, oh, I didn't even know you were pregnant. Not that kind of thing. Um, somehow, some way, I was able to persuade my wife not to find out if we were having a boy or a girl. I still don't know because, or how I did that. Because my, my wife, if you know her, she's a planner. Like, like she plans decades in advance for what's going to happen, which is why we're probably a great fit. But she likes to plan things. And somehow she said, okay, if you don't want to know, we'll just wait till the day the baby's born. Now, she's like, how am I going to do that? Because I need to plan. I'm like, well, just buy neutral colors. 
So when Savannah was born, guess what? Lots of neutral colors in, in her clothes, in the clothes and in the, in the room that she lived in. Well, um, I can still remember that day when Savannah was born. And I remember that moment where when she was there and we saw that, that we were having a girl. I mean, I cried. This is one of those moments. I, I just cried. I cried and Kara started planning for how she was going to change the colors for, for her. <laughs> Avery was born, our middle daughter, and um, I'll just be honest, it was a horrible experience. Um, it, it was terrible. The epidural didn't work for Kara, and uh, if you've been in that place before, uh, lots of pain, lot, lots of hard uh, conversations, lots of words being sent back and forth. And, um, and, you know, it was tough, but now we were planned for her. We, we knew we were having a girl care after the first one, like, we're not doing that again. So we had all the pink stuff. We were good to go. Uh, I cried that day too. And it wasn't because we had a daughter. It was because of the words that Kara threw at me that whole time. Jake, our youngest, when he was born, I don't remember a whole lot. I remember driving to Fair, Fair Oaks Hospital because that's where he was born here in Fairfax County. I remember that. But other than that, I don't remember a whole lot. I mean, he, he was planned. We, we, we knew that we were having a, a boy. Kara was ready to go. I didn't cry that day. Kara was nice to me. So it was just a perfect, perfect birth. But when I think about those, those three specific birth days, I can remember the excitement. And you know what I didn't do? I didn't go up to Kara as the babies were there. I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. It's like, hey, I'm going to go home. You can come give me a call when you're ready to, to come back to the house because I'm just going to go home. It's not that important to me. I, I didn't do that. I, I'm on the phone. I'm calling people. I'm texting people. I'm emailing family and friends. I'm letting everybody I know that I can think of, hey, guess what? We have a child because it was an exciting event. <laughs> we're doing the happy dance. John and Peter have some of the most incredible news to tell. And yet, what do they do? They celebrate. They go and run and tell everybody. No. They go back to the place that they were staying. They go back to more than likely the upper room, the place they had dinner with Jesus on Thursday previously. And they're there. They're kind of waiting. I think they're confused. And they're asking that question, where is Jesus? Let's scoot on down. In chapter 20 to verse 19, it says, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus has died. People have investigated the tomb already, and they see that it's empty. In between what we just read here and what we read a little bit earlier, Mary Magdalene actually sees Jesus alive and goes and tells them, Hey, hold up a second. I, I, Jesus is alive. They, they've got all of this information. They've spent all this time with Jesus. They've heard all these teachings, all these stories. They know exactly, they're supposed to know what was going to happen. Jesus kept saying, I'm going to come back to life. I'm going to leave you for a bit. I'm going to come back. So this is going to be incredible. Some cool stuff's going to take place. And yet here they are in this room, in this locked room, sitting. Uh, again, my, my guess is confusion has set in for them. Now, they're not playing cards. They're not eating babka and, and bagels in that moment. They're trying to figure out what, what has happened. And they're trying to figure out what are we going to do. Because there's a lot of fear there in this confusion. They were afraid that they were going to be next. 
They were afraid they were going to come in and take them because, guess what? They're known accomplices of Jesus. They're known friends and followers of Jesus. And so they're afraid they may be next. And so they've locked themselves in this room. My guess is it probably is a step farther than that. I'm going to say I bet they were barricaded in this room. Again, because of fear and confusion. And that question is there, where's Jesus? Look at the rest of verse 19. It says, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, they spent all this time for Jesus, a little bit over three years. They experienced Jesus in those moments. They they heard his teachings, and yet they find themselves in this room asking, where is Jesus? And what does Jesus do? Jesus shows up. And he didn't come ringing a doorbell. He didn't come knocking on the door. He didn't do on the door knocker things like, hey, can you guys let me in? No, they're, they're in this room, it's locked, they're confused, it's barricaded, and all of a sudden Jesus is there and he's like, hey, it's me. Here are my hands, here's my side. I'm good to go. But do you notice the word that he uses? He says peace. And that word would have been the word shalom. Uh, that word peace for us and shalom for them are actually different words. The definition for shalom is a little bit stronger than peace. Uh, it means completeness. It means wholeness. And I think in that moment, as he, as he jumps into this room, as he shows up in this room right in front of them, in that moment, he's saying, hey, guess what? It's complete. I've come here, and I have done exactly what I was called to do, what God intended for me to do. I have defeated death. Everything is whole now. And I think in some way in that word peace, Jesus is also saying, hey, everybody, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. When we look at the story here in John chapter 20, when was the moment they actually experienced Jesus? Think about it. It wasn't the tomb, was it? The tomb was empty. The tomb caused confusion for them. Now, it wasn't until Jesus showed up in the midst of where they were, afraid, scared, confused. It was only at that moment when they fully experienced Jesus that they understood who Jesus actually was. It was that moment there in that room where they figured that they had brand new life. Because then I'm guessing that as they're in that room and they're talking, they're kind of thinking, do we give up? Do we give in? What are we supposed to do? I mean... I guess we go back to our normal life. I guess we go back to our old life because Jesus isn't here. And yet Jesus shows up and they experience Jesus. And when they experience Jesus, what did they do? They believed. And they said, he is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. A new life was beginning for them. It is said that Winston Churchill planned his whole funeral And he had a little surprise at the end of it there in St. Paul's Cathedral. As the funeral is ending, uh, he had set up two buglers on either side of the dome, hidden from everybody who was there. And as the funeral ended, as everybody thought, well, this is the end, all of a sudden, on one side of the dome, all of a sudden you hear taps being played by one of the buglers. And, of course, we know taps is the the end of the day, uh, symbolic of the end of a life. 
But as taps is being finished, as you're thinking, well, that, that, that makes sense for what's happening today. On the other end of the dome, all of a sudden, Reveille begins to play. And what is that? It's the beginning of a day. A new dawn has started. Churchill understood that it wasn't the end of a life. It was just the beginning. That this was a starting point. This was a new start, a new life for him, a new day was dawning. When you and I look at our lives, I don't know if there were any different than these followers here in, in our story. We're confused. We're afraid. We're, we're hiding. And, and maybe for you and I, we ask that exact same question, where's Jesus? Because we, we look at our life and some of us were like, well, I, I follow Jesus or I sort of follow Jesus, but why are all of my relationships messy? Why is my, my marriage the way it is? Why do my kids, why have they made the decisions they've made in their life? I mean, I, I'm following Jesus, but this doesn't make any sense to me. Or we look at our dating world and we're thinking to ourselves, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to find that one person and spend my life with her but, or him, and, and it's struggling for me. I'm struggling with that. And we wonder, where's Jesus? We look at our finances. We look at our jobs. We're like, well, Jesus, where, where are you in this? Or other aspects of life. Maybe it's health. We're dealing with sickness and illness. Maybe we're dealing with hopelessness. And you know what? We're asking that exact same question. Where is Jesus? I, I thought Jesus would be right here to help me. Or for, still for others of us, it's a spiritual question. I mean, is Jesus real? Did Jesus really die and come back to life? And again, we, we struggle with these questions of, of where is Jesus? And like the people in our story, in these events that took place, we're confused. And here's what some people will say. They'll say, hey, you're confused. You're asking that question. Read the scriptures. Read the Bible. Then you'll meet Jesus. Then you'll know Jesus. I do believe that will work for some people. But can I tell you, I think we really have to experience Jesus in our lives to make this come true for us in such a way that we get to a place where we understand that you and I, we have new life because of who Jesus is. And it only happens when we fully experience Jesus. Then we can grasp him. Then we can take hold of that brand new life. But we've got to experience Jesus to get to that place. When I think about my own life, there are two times where I feel like I fully experienced Jesus. The first was when I was baptized. I was nine years old. I still remember that day. I can still remember that feeling I had that day. I can still remember what that day was like, every little aspect of it. And I experienced Jesus in, in that moment. The second time I remember fully experiencing Jesus was actually before our three kids were, were born. I've shared a little bit of this in the past. Um, sometimes people will look at you like, oh, you got three kids. God's blessed you. You've had an amazing life. You know, everything's perfect. It's not. Uh, our first child was before Savannah. When we were four months pregnant, uh, we did the, the testing that they have to do at four months. And they came to us and said, hey, here's a deal. Um, everything should be fine. You guys are young. You're healthy. You're in good shape. You should be fine. But just in case, just so you know, they may call you if they see anything on these tests that they have some concerns about. Well, about two days later, we got that phone call. And they said, hey, we need you into the hospital right now. So we were living in New Jersey at the time. We went down to um, Pennsylvania's Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. And over the next few moments, they explained to us all the, all the health issues our child had. Every little detail. 
They said, hey, we don't know how your child is still alive. She should be, she should be dead. She should have passed away. And in fact, here's what we're going to ask you to do. We think you should terminate this pregnancy ASAP. My, my wife, Karen, and I, we looked at each other in that moment. and said, well, that's not an option for us. We're not going to do that. We're not going to make that happen. And in our minds, we're thinking, we're followers of Jesus. <laughs> we got this. Because here's what's going to happen. God's going to do an amazing miracle. God's going to do something so amazing that all these doctors and nurses and radio techs and everybody who's there, they're going to see this. They're going to experience this. And they'll be like, God must be real. I want to follow Jesus. Three and a half months later, Kendall Grace was stillborn into this world. Seven and a half months of pregnancy my wife went through and a terrible, terrible, horrible day to give birth to her. A lot of pain, hurt, struggles. I was very angry at God. I'm sitting there putting all the pieces together and I'm thinking, we are young, we are healthy, we're Christians. Man, I work for for a church, I'm a pastor, all this stuff. These are all the checklists you should have, right? And everything should be perfect and this baby should be fine and this miracle should take place. But it didn't. God and I had some pretty intense conversations in those moments. I said a few things to God that I probably shouldn't repeat in a place like this. And maybe you've been there in your life too. It's hard. It's painful. Kara and I, in those moments, honestly, our marriage struggles for a little while. Sometimes this is the moment where people are like, I'm out. I'm done. I can't can't deal with this. It, It was tough for us within our relationship. It was tough for us as followers of Jesus. But here's what happened. As we're questioning this, as we're asking where is Jesus in this, as I struggle with my faith in that moment, Jesus showed up. Now, Jesus didn't show up right in front of me like, hey, look at my hands, look at my side, I'm here, everything's good, it's going to be all right. It wasn't like that, it took time. It was the love that we received from other people during this, this, this dark night in our life. It was the love that we, we found for each other through this, but more importantly, it was Jesus. We didn't feel like we had anything else to hold on to. The only thing that we had was, was Jesus, and you know what we did in those moments? We held on to that. We're like, this is all we got. We just got to hold on to Jesus through this. What we found in those days and weeks and months is that Jesus is life. When we can't keep moving forward, when, when we are struggling with who we are, when, when our faith is being battered, guess what? Jesus is life. That's why in John fourteen six he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it's true that when you and I can't keep moving forward, when we have these questions about where Jesus is, when we're confused about who Jesus is in our life, Jesus is like, hey, I'm here, and I want you to experience me in this tough moment, in this hurt, in this pain, in this struggle, because I'm here for you. I am life. Wherever you may be in your faith journey, I hope you realize that Jesus is life, that Jesus is freedom, Jesus is hope, Jesus is love, but, but more than anything, Jesus is life. Those followers of Jesus, they were confused, probably ready to give up, move on, go back to their old life. What happened to them? They got brand new life, didn't they? Because all of a sudden, Jesus is there, and I'm here, and everything's going to be okay. He gave them life again. 
And they use that. And you and I are here today because 2,000 years ago, Jesus showed back up in their life and they're like, hey, this is a story worth telling. In other faiths, we, we or people celebrate death. Buddha, Muhammad, we could keep making a list, but we don't celebrate death when it comes to Jesus, do we? We celebrate life, the life that we have been given through Jesus Christ. Maybe for you this morning, your next step is to wonder, how can I experience Jesus? Now, for some of us, we're followers of Jesus, and, and we've got to be reminded Jesus is life. And, and we have the opportunity to take that and to, to help those that need it, to say, hey, you're going through a tough time. Let me, let me be there for you. Because I think a lot of times Jesus talks to us through the lives of others. Or maybe it's your prayer life. Honestly, that was the one thing that kept Kara and I together in those moments when we were struggling with that death was we got to pray about this and we prayed about it and we continued to pray about it and they were painful prayers but but over time we understood that Jesus was the life that we needed in that moment so maybe that's the place you're at for others in here today maybe it's just a moment to say hey I got to take a step of faith during our first service McKenna Jeffords was baptized and it was amazing to watch her mom, Jen, baptize her because here's, here's this young girl saying, I'm in, I'm ready to go. I want to follow Jesus because Jesus is life. During our 11 o'clock service, we have a couple other ladies that are going to be baptized. And the same thing, they're saying Jesus is life. And maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, that's the step I need to take. Let me share with you this. You may be here and thinking, well, I didn't come prepared to do that. Um, hey, don't worry, we got you covered. We bought shorts, we got t-shirts, we got towels, we got almost, we don't have the hair dryers, but we got almost everything else that you would need this morning. And so maybe for you this morning, you're like, Jesus is life and I need to take that step of faith. I'm going to be up here during communion time. Come see me like, hey, I want to do this. We'll make that happen after we get done with our service this morning. Because we believe that Jesus is life. When you're walking through your daily life and you look around and you feel this tension, you feel this pain, you feel this hurt, you're struggling, you're confused, there's one thing for you to remember, that Jesus is life for you and for me. The only way that we get there is when we experience Jesus in our life, hopefully every single day. That's why we celebrate Easter. We don't celebrate the death. We celebrate Jesus' life. And you and I celebrate that for followers of Christ every single day that we live. Because Jesus is life to you and for me.